Recorded live on planet Earth, it's Transformation Thursday, Safe in the Galaxy Edition. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. As we hunker down into a full month of being shut-ins, instead of painting our nails, we are seriously thinking about pulling them out one by one just to experience new feelings. Talk about feelings. Our guest tonight is a family and marriage therapist specializing in helping queer youth and parents with their mental health. Tonight we will be discussing what queer people can do during this difficult time to maintain their mental health, especially as so many might be sheltering in place with non-supportive family or friends. Our conversation with Kimberly Anderson will begin about a minute after our traditional music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one, the coins, money, about how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses. And by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I am Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, hers. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are not open for debate, and they are she, her. You know, Penny, I'm super excited about this conversation we're going to have tonight. Well, you get to talk to me every week, at least once, if not more, so I'm really not sure why. Yeah, I, I am always excited to speak with you, Penny, but you and our guest tonight wrote letters for me to get into graduate school. You both wrote letters of recommendation on my behalf, and I'm so thankful to both of you. Oh, yeah, that's right. You were accepted in SUNY Brockport's master's program in mental health counseling. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, um, I think I'm going to start in the summer, depending on how this um, self in place thing kind of pans out over the next few months. But our guest tonight is Kimberly Anderson. Um, she's had a big influence in my transition. She's an ex-Mormon trans woman like me. And early on, she really helped me figure out um, and our relationship has evolved into a friendship via the internet as we tend to hang out in the ex-Mormon queer world, <laughs> which is very, very small and well-connected, but I've learned. And just like the Latter-day lesbians, it's also pretty cool. So let's welcome Kimberly Anderson to Transformation Thursday. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi, Penny. Hi, Amy. Actually, you know what? I don't like saying guys because guys is not gender neutral. Hello, ladies. Hello. Oh, yeah, I was not going to correct you, but I was thinking the same thing. The same thing with dude, as far as I'm concerned. I hate the word dude. It drives me... Except, yeah. uh, you know, the only person that gets to say dude is, is the dude. Yeah, the big Lebowski. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because I was teaching primary and back when I was um, still going to church and um, being an ex-Mormon, we're both very familiar with these Mormon terms of primary. And there was an 11 year old primary girl in there one day and she calls me dude. And I and this is pre-transition. And I just like, do not call me dude. So this dates back for me. Like, it's just so impersonal. But I've also learned working at Starbucks with all the young kids, dude and man are just ubiquitous in Gen, in Gen Y cultures. So it still bothers me. It, does me too. it still implies that to be cool, you have to be somehow masculine. That if a, if a woman is a dude, it's because they're acting like a man. And I don't like that characterization at all. And I pull out the Gen X thing and I just say, I gave up my man card three years ago. Mm. 
Yeah. So, well, Kimberly, it's great to have you here. You know, so much going on in your world. Um, tell us what's keeping Kimberly busy these days. Well, telecommuting, for sure. Um, let's see. This is the. This will be the third uh, Zoom conference call I've had um, today. Um, I I'm kind of between work assignments right now. Currently, I work for a company called Center for Discovery. We do eating disorder recovery. We do um, drug and alcohol recovery, and we also do behavior health, mostly residential, um, a few um, intensive outpatient clinics. But I am the on-call therapist here in Northern California. I live in Sacramento, but I, I uh, work in houses in Granite Bay, which is northeast of Sacramento. I also work down in the Bay Area. Um, so I've been bouncing back and forth and around the, for the past six months um, after uh, you know getting hired there. I went to Utah for a week. I did a bunch of lectures there. Um, did a bunch of group therapy sessions with a bunch of the queer Mormon kids. Uh, and then I came back here right as the quarantine was beginning. And coincidentally, my next assignment for Center for Discovery, they didn't need me. The, the therapist they were onboarding that they wanted me to help train, she was very strong. And so they decided not to need me at this particular house. So literally, I have been workless for the past three weeks now. That being said, I am giving offering support to therapists. I'm holding groups. Uh, I'm uh, meeting individually with people all the time via telehealth. I'm doing a ton of research, I'm spreading a lot of psychoeducation about mindfulness, um, self-care, uh, and also um, keeping in touch with the, my colleagues in San Francisco and the Bay Area that spe uh, specifically are working with uh, transgender youth in that population. So we had a two hour support group, uh, professional work group today uh, via Zoom. Uh, so I, even though it's been three weeks without like official paying work, I am so incredibly busy. I don't know what I'm gonna do when I actually start uh, back again. I'm actually beginning, I'm starting at a, a private practice here in the next week or two here in Sacramento and um, you know, looking for clients uh, in the California area, thanks to telecommuting, I can, I can, uh, or telehealth rather, I can serve anyone in California. They don't have to be in my office. So I, I have the fifth largest economy in the world to kind of ply my craft within. And that's what I'm gearing up for in the next couple of weeks. Wow. That is an awful lot. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're there and of service to people, yeah, especially especially in times like this. I keep thinking about, uh, you know, eggs, the, the, the trans people who mm. are planning on coming out and we're maybe even thinking about doing it around the Transgender Day of Visibility who are now, you know, sheltering in place in drag right. you know, as as the as, as their wrong gender in an unsupportive household that would be very very challenging yeah yeah or the ones that i know i know a lot of uh trans women younger women who still live with their families mm -hmm. uh that, that where there was not a lot of acceptance and so now they they would they would counter that by spending most of their lives away from the home, going out, doing their jobs, going to the library, being social in public. And now they can't do that. And they're stuck in houses with unsupportive relatives. Yeah, their outlet, their safety valve has been essentially taken away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you counsel uh, or how would you counsel and a, a somebody who came to you with that issue? Of not having the ability to be yourself in a in a long drawn out quarantine situation. Yeah, uh, I I this is a difficult one, and this is true for. Uh, there's a lot of different relationships that we can look at that fit into this category. There are a lot of school kids that are home away from school, in a in a home environment where they may be subject to domestic abuse. Uh, or child abuse. A lot of spouses are at home due to quarantine that are in a household where there's a lot of abusive situations. Many LGBT people, specifically transgender people, are in an environment where they are uh, in an unsupporting household. My absolute first rule of thumb would be to stay safe. Do whatever you need to do to stay safe. If that's not coming out, if that's keeping your head down and biting your tongue, uh, staying safe short of being hurt. Uh, you know, if you're being hurt, then call the police. If you're being, if you know of children that are being hurt, call CPS and get get a CPS uh, case report going. But if you're an adult and you can kind of, and you're sheltering in place, then absolutely just stay safe. 
If you're safe, if that basic need is met, if you're safe and you're fed and you're warm and you're dry, which many people that are transgender can't say because the homeless population in the trans community is huge. If you're one of the lucky few that is in that situation where you're warm and safe and fed and dry, then you got to figure out a way to carve out a space for yourself, either mentally, talk with your spouse very openly and clearly, or your partner, and find out uh, ways that you can kind of isolate yourself from that situation. You may not have to come out to them. That's not what I'm advocating for. Because if coming out is an unsafe thing, you may put yourself into some emotional jeopardy just from doing just from the coming out process. Whether you're in or out of the closet to your to your housemates, let's call them. Find a spot uh, where you can retreat into your own little um, let's call it your fortress of solitude, for lack of a better phrase. Um, find out ways that you can. Uh, acknowledge and celebrate your inner identity, regardless of whether you're a non-binary, transmasculine, transfeminine person. Find ways to celebrate your identity uh, on your terms that keep you safe. Still the most important, the most operable term here. And inhabit that space, you know, when you need to. If you need to withdraw, do that. If you need to wear something that, that makes you feel the way that you are comfortable, do that. Uh, if it doesn't necessarily need to be something that is visible, to help relieve feelings of gender dysphoria if you're a transgender person. Um, I would say looking, looking into some mindfulness practices, certainly some meditation, certainly some uh, yoga, some deep breathing exercises can bring you into kind of an inner congruence with who you are, despite the atmosphere of chaos that's going on around us. And that brings up something for me, kind of when I started coming out, there, there's two things that jump out at me. One is what we termed in some of the cross-dressing servers that I was on was underdressing. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's wearing, you know, in my case, I would have been wearing female underwear or something underneath my mm -hmm. male presenting clothes. And I would say that definitely helps. But how important could online communities be during this situation? Online communities are crucial. In fact, one of the things that we counsel parents uh, when they have kids that are coming out that, that have behavior health issues, often parents like to discipline their children by removing their ability to connect, either via the cell phone or internet service. One of the things that's a tremendous disservice is to remove the ability to connect with your chosen community. In fact, it gets, it's so significant to maintain that connection that when you remove that connection or that ability to make those connections, your risk for suicidality increases, your risk for depression increases, your risk for uh, uh, addictive behavior increases, your risk for anxiety decreases, just based solely on your ability to connect with supportive people outside of your choosing. So make sure Absolutely make sure that you can maintain whatever level of connectivity you need to to that community which you feel uh, trusted within and you're trusting of them with your particular experience. Absolutely. Uh, maintain that. In fact, that's one of the things that we can do as transgender people is check in with those other people in our community to make sure they're safe. I've been holding a weekly um, LGBTQ open group on Facebook. Uh, it's not a therapy group because I'm crossing state lines. Uh, we just do a peer counseling group and we talk about issues that are going on for the week. And we've been, this is our second week that we've been doing it. And honestly, most of the uh, audience both weeks were transgender people. I was on last week and I found it very helpful. Unfortunately, just mm -hmm. we usually record at 7 p.m. Eastern time so that I can only join for part of it. And then tonight mm -hmm. I just took a nap because I was tired after working. So sorry. Yeah, no excuses. Yeah, yeah, so, it's fine. But so, but that's incredibly important advice. So, mm -hmm. and so, but what, you know, in addition to, you know, you know, not taking away electronic communication, you know, but what are some other good tips for parents as they start navigating into this world? So let's say they are having a child who's starting to show some signs of, you know, some gender non-binary, maybe be a trans, you know, what, what are some resources for parents? So this is the wonderful thing about the Bay Area. Uh, we have access to some incredible local resources. Fortunately, one of those local resources is nat national in stature, and that's Gender Spectrum. Their website is genderspectrum.org. And this is the preeminent organization in the country for educating parents um, as to the reality of transgender people, uh, they, they and we, I've lectured at Gender Spectrum uh, many times and run groups. We do incredible things with parent groups, uh, religious leaders, schools, um, 
fire, 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 EMT, police, hospital personnel. We, Gender Spectrum goes out and does all kinds of amazing training to the general public about this. And one of the things that Gender Spectrum specializes in is educating parents. And right now, Gender Spectrum has a ton of resources that are online. In fact, uh, Joel Baum, the director of Gender Spectrum, came on today to our um, provider meeting and gave us a list of resources for online telehealth meetings, virtual meetings for parents, for group leaders, for children, um, for, for all kinds of um, different needs that trans kids need. Um, and I would say, quite frankly, that uh, my emphasis and my knowledge and, and kind of my target audience is the transgender audience. So I know a lot of the trans resources uh, that are in place, especially for parents in schools. So my go to often and uh, all the time really is gender spectrum, just because it's so deep and it's so broad and diverse. And I trust them because I know these people personally. Yeah, and he's, he's, you're bringing in a lot of resources. And, but let's say you're dealing with a parent mm -hmm. and, you know, you and I come from, you know, a, a religious background that would, took a very binary approach on gender and sexuality even, you know, what do you say to those parents who are going to say to you, but my religion teaches it's man, woman, end of story. How do you start to break down those barriers? One of the things that's difficult when working with people from an ultra-religious or an ultra-orthodox background is this appeal to science. Because often religious people, um, their, their moral ground or their moral framework is that kind of set aside from science, particularly with issues of morality, especially with issues of gender identity and sexuality. So one of the things that you really can't do with the ultra-Orthodox, true-believing uh, religious person is you can't really appeal to science because they will look at that scientific evidence and they will claim that it's inherently biased. So really what I have to do as a clinician and as an educator is appeal to the personal and as we say, the personal is political, and you'll see kind of how that plays out. When I tell a person my life experience, they have a hard time uh, ignoring and dismissing the reality of, uh, of my spiritual upbringing, the struggle that I had as a, trying to find myself in religion, the reality, uh, the realization that I had that it was a difficult place for me as a transgender person to have a home within my religious faith community, which at the time, you know, growing up was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. In Rochester, I'm certain you're familiar with the Mormon Church. Uh, big things just down the road in a little, little sleepy little village called Palmyra, which I've been to and I love, by the way. In Palmyra. Yeah, and this is the last year of the of the pageant. I think the I think pageant, that's I right. think you're due for a visit, Kimberly. Well, I you know, it's funny. I have a lot of friends that work at George Eastman House. My former career was as a photographer. And so as an as a photographic educator. And so as we, you know, it's a small world in that community as well. And so shout out to George Eastman House to the amazing people that are there teaching photographic education. Uh, but back to, to the resources for the parent, I think, quite frankly, what I do with the parent is I acknowledge, and I've sat in these meetings with these parents, with their gender non-conforming or their gender non-binary or their trans kid, and I see the fear in their eye. I see the trepidation. I hear it in their voice, and I say, I want to make sure you know that this is a difficult thing that you're undertaking, and what you're doing is incredibly brave. You're modeling bravery for your child in the fact that you can even openly talk about or discuss any issues of gender at all. How far you go down this road is, is entirely up to you. I can't tell anybody what to do as a therapist. That's never my role. But my role is to build up their strengths. My role is to identify the things that they have in common with their child. My role is to show that they do have an inherent love for their kid as their parent. My role is also to show that when they, um, the communication breakdown with their child is, can be so significant that at, when the communications uh, or the distrust, the lack of trust begins in the parent-child relationship, the child is gonna go outside of the home for community, for resources, for information. Uh, these kids are gonna transition. 
regardless of their parental support. They're going to find uh, black market hormones. They're going to find their community. They're going to find a friend that's going to hold their clothes for them or, or buy them a binder. They're going to find their friend's house that they can go to and be safe. Do you want that to be your home or do you want that to be some stranger's home that you may not know or trust? So my main goal in those first sessions is to establish a line of communication uh, rebuild that um, level of trust on some level, let the trans kid and the trans parent, tra the parent of the transgender child, know that there really is a bond of love there that is going to be a very fundamental part of their relationship moving forward. The success of their child's life really is dependent on the ability for the parent to accept and to uh, celebrate the child's life. And I've seen, and I've seen that here. I have a, a a girlfriend that who has you know for ever she has kids that are you know youngest being seventeen, oldest one thirty one, thirty two, and she's always made her house open to LGBTQ youth and good. That's the best thing she can be doing. Yeah, and you know, and so that's really paid dividends for you know it's always been a safe place. So you know, I can echo that and I've seen that play out in, in real life. But, you know, you, you mentioned something in there too, you know, coming from that religious background, how much does it help when you're talking to people? We had a guest on last week talking about gender, um, gender in the Bible, but that you can speak that religious language with the people sitting across from you. It might not be the exact background, but at least you have that similar faith experience and you come from there. How, how critical is it to speak their language so they do do buy in with some, no, nah, I don't want to say buy in, but it lends you some credibility, I think. Well, my main goal as a therapist is to build that relationship of trust between me and the patient or me and the client. That's my primary job. If I don't have the trust between me and the, and the client, nothing of substance is going to happen ever at all. So I have to find a way to build a commonality with that individual uh, whatever that may be, whether I, I was a parent or I, I am a parent still, I have two adult children, so I can appeal to their role as a parent. We have that shared history. I was married for 20 years. Uh, I can appeal to that history of, of being a spouse, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of other, you know, being a spouse and having children together with my spouse. Um, I was divorced. I can appeal to that commonality with the divorce and the challenges of, of having children uh, within a divorced household. Um, when I get a, someone that comes from an orthodox religious background that can speak to the Bible or, or language in the Bible, I, you know, if it's a Jewish person, we can talk about the love that's shown in the Old Testament. If it's someone who believes in Christianity or Jesus Christ, then we can talk about the love that's modeled in the New Testament. My favorite scripture to turn to is Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking to the lawyer and the lawyer asks Jesus, what is the greatest law that we need to, to inhabit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, no, 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 wait a minute. There's no law that's, that's in play here. Love of God is first, love of others is second, and love of self is third. And then whatever laws are in place, they come next. When I can really kind of walk through that scriptural passage, Matthew 22 with the family, and really show them the most important thing that your Christianity demands of you, Jesus Christ himself, quoted in the King James Version of the Bible at least, is this foundational basis of love. If they're not starting any relationship that they have with their child, whether they're trans or not, if it's not based in love, there's a, there's a real uh, risk for damaging that, that level of trust. One of the other really important resources that I use all the time that speaks to both a secular and a religious framework is Dr. Caitlin Ryan from San Francisco State University. She has a, a, a 20 to 30 year longitudinal survey, a data-driven uh, project called the Family Acceptance Project. Her website is familyproject.sfsu.edu. And she has a lot of resources there. She has downloadable posters and graphics. She has downloadable uh, books for individuals. There's one, coincidentally, that's written for a Mormon or a Latter-day Saint audience. So she sees the need to provide a religious framework for parents' support, as well as a secular framework for their parents' support. By the way, some of her data shows that when a parent can support their child, in their family environment, in their social environment, in their educational environment, and in their um, occupational environment, in those four environments, when a parent shows support, 
their risk of suicidality drops incrementally, monumentally, from 91% to 3%, and it drops in chunks as more of those areas are affirmed. It drops their suicidality. It drops their anxiety. It drops their depression. It drops their uh, other comorbid uh, negative health outcomes just from accepting their pronouns and their name. It is the quickest, the easiest, the cheapest way to reduce those risk factors in youth, bar none. There is no therapeutic modality. There is no medication. There is no amount of conversion therapy, which is illegal, by the way. There's no amount of that which can change your child's mental health status quicker than that of parental acceptance. When parents can see that data, that does change their mind. That's like the few pieces of data that will change parents' minds. We had Celine Google on before, and that was one of the things that, you know, she said those risks factors decrease so much. Mm-hmm. And so, nope. And she's right. Yeah, there's data about that. Lots of data. And it's pronounced Celine Gugos. She from she from Canada. Well, she's Hungarian, I believe, oh, okay. or or no, or Turkish. I'm sorry, she's Turkish. I I misnationed her, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a. In one of our previous ones, Celine Gungos is a researcher who is doing the largest, um, largest transgender youth survey is the right word about how they socialize when they are allowed to be their authentic gender. And it, it shows that they are they are indistinguishable from cisgender kids at their exactly. age. Yes, exactly. How much of the work that it seems people have to do to convince the, the to convince faith people who are deeply religious that this is not sinful, this is not the devil's work, that this is still in accordance, that we're still God's children. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to why it is that this is such a sticking point to so many faiths. Uh, So the question is, why do religious people have a hard time understanding something beyond a male-female binary? Is that the question? Yes. Yeah, in those exact words. Those were the exact words I used to ask that question. Very good. Thank you. It's nice to paraphrase accurately. Individuals have a difficult time understanding anything outside the male-female binary, largely because that's the language that's presented in Genesis. And that's really all it comes down to. It is interesting, though, in the Jewish uh, Torah, there are between five and seven different categorizations for gender between male and female. And let's not forget that the first convert to Christianity after Jesus admonished the apostles to go and spread the gospel outside of the Jewish community, the first person to join the church was a eunuch. And if you translate back the word eunuch into the Hebrew, eunuch means intersex individual. It does not mean a gay person. It's an intersex individual. Yeah, that's eunuch. one of my favorite paces, so passages. It is interesting, speaking of youth, children, and transgender identity, on March 16th of this year, on the JAMA Notebook, or the JANA Network uh, site, JohnNetwork.com. Senior Sinai Medical Center actually had a case study. Uh, their sample size was 155 uh, individuals. And they talked about these individuals. I just posted this on my Facebook page today, actually. The study uh, asked 155 individuals who were seeking gender confirmation surgery, when did they know that they were transgender? Their average age was seven. Average age was seven. And I know for me, it was younger than five. And I know in the groups that I work with, both the therapists and gender spectrum, our approach or our philosophical mindset is that the younger a child comes to us with this information, the more we need to take them seriously. Would you be willing to share your story with us, with our our audience? I'd I'd love to hear it. Uh, So currently I'm 51 years old. Um, I was adopted, given up for adoption at five weeks of age, coincidentally here in Sacramento. Uh, given up for at, uh, five weeks of age for adoption. Five weeks later, so at 10 weeks of age, I was adopted by a Mormon family living in Davis, California. My dad was teaching animal sciences at, uh, at uh, University of Davis, or U- UC Davis, University of California Davis. 
And that family had um, just experienced loss of a child due to SIDS. And so my adoption was the result of this lost child. So I was kind of this the, the consolation prize, essentially. Um, I, I have no knowledge of my birth mother. I don't know who she is, and I have not chased her for a lot of different reasons. But I do know that my adoptive mother was experiencing a lot of trauma based on the loss of her child. I had experienced adoption separation trauma, and then who knows what kind of attachment issues I had, excuse me, while I was in uh, state custody for five weeks. So I have no idea what additional traumas I had beyond that of my initial adoption. I come in with attachment issues as an adoptive baby. I was adopted into a family that has trauma because of the loss of a child who may also be experiencing some challenges with attaching to a child based on the, you know, the very sight of this child is a reminder of the child that they lost. So knowing what I know about early childhood development and how we internalize things, I was taught that I had no self-worth. I was taught that I was not worthy of love. And I was taught that I was not worthy of being fed or being taken care of because when I cried, those needs weren't uh, met. I cried so much as a child that my dad wrote a poem called The Boy Who Liked to Cry. Um, so it was a source of ridicule and derision, certainly in my youth. Uh, my parents were active Mormons, active LDS people, very orthodox belief. Um, and as we bounced around next to Fort Collins, Colorado, and then ending up in northern Utah, uh, my dad continued to teach at the university. So he had an academic background, but also this very strict orthodox background that taught him the binary reality of man and woman, as shown in Genesis and as reinforced by the Mormon, uh, Mormon theology. My awareness of who I was um, started very, very young. Um, I internalized it and squashed it down because within my framework in rural community in northern Utah, a very orthodox community, we had no framework to discuss issues of sexuality. We made fun of gay people. We ridiculed gay people. We beat up gay people. We were told in church that they were the scourge of the earth. We were told in church that going to San Francisco, you would be sucked into the gay culture and you would die lonely and of AIDS. And we were taught that AIDS was a disease sent down by God to wipe out gay individuals. So I'm hearing this message repeatedly growing up. And as I'm coming to more of an awareness of who I am as, an indi as a gendered individual and knowing that my male gender role that I was expected to play, because that's the one I was assigned at birth, I knew that that male gender role didn't fit me. It didn't feel right. I don't know what it was about. I don't know if it was me being attracted to girls. I don't know if it was me wanting to you know, present as a woman. It was so confusing to me because I had no language, no framework, no role models, no examples. And certainly my parents had no uh, capability even to discuss these things at all, much less a willingness to discuss them. So I stayed scared and afraid and kept my head down and stayed safe. I did flirt with suicidality a little bit as a child or as, a, as an early teenager. We did have guns in the house, firearms in the house. Uh, we had pellet guns and pellet rifles and BB guns up at the horses where the, the farm was. We would shoot birds and stuff. We were kind of hell-raising Mormon boys. Um, my dad did have hunting rifles that I did not know how to use. And I many times considered using that rifle to end my life but I stopped because I was afraid to use it. Uh, I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know how to use that rifle. And I was afraid that if I tried a suicide attempt and I failed in it, that my mother would never let me live it down. Whether or not I injured myself or not, it would be, it would be immaterial. I would never be able to recover from the shame that my mother would make me feel from a suicide attempt. So that uh, fear of shame from my mother about a potential suicide attempt, that's what kept me alive in a really kind of an interesting, kind of a twisted way. Uh, as I'm moving into my teenage years, I'm definitely understanding my, that, that it's about gender. I'm definitely understanding that uh, uh, now, by, by now I have access to research materials and books and magazines and papers and, uh, and I can go to the library and I can read uh, about Jan Morris and her book called Conundrum. I can read about um, Renee Richards Actually, it's uh, now is it Renee Richards. Anyway, Jan Richards uh, or Renee Richards and Jan Morris, and I'm reading these books that are available in the public library, and I'm scared to even check them out. I'm terrified to go to the card catalog 
and look through and write down the Dewey Decimal number and go to the aisle in the library and pull the book out. I'm looking back and forth over my shoulders. Are there people that see me pulling this book off the shelf? Because if they even see me pulling the book off the shelf, they're going to go, oh, they know she's transgender. We got to beat her up. We're going to knock her out and we're going to smack her down. So the fear, literally from God, about who I was and learning about who I am scared me to death. I watched Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer would have competitions, find the tranny, right? Uh, Jerry Springer, uh, all I knew were clownish representations of women. And I knew that that wasn't me. I was not a drag queen. I wanted to be a regular run of the mill, generic vanilla white bread woman. That's what I wanted to be. I did not want to be a drag queen. And seeing drag queen representation on TV scared me even further. And it closeted me even further. It was terrifying yeah, but to me. There was also episodes, and this is where I figured out that I wanted to transition for the first time. But there were episodes where the guy was dating the woman, but they hadn't been intimate yet. I mean, did you ever see those episodes? I mean, and the transgender woman was not dead gorgeous. Did you ever see those and empathize and want to be her? I... Probably didn't see those because I don't remember them. I do know this, that it was all I could do to see any of the episodes at all because I was afraid of being caught watching Jerry Springer watch the transgender people or the drag queens. Because that alone was enough of, uh, I was afraid of that enough of being caught, being guilty by association. This fear of being caught, this fear of being guilty by association is so deep. Uh, and it's something that I wrestle with. It, it's it's in it's baked into me this fear, and I work through a lot of it. You know, with the help of a lot of talented people. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, I have the same a similar story. Uh, I'm not going to do the entire thing because mm -hmm. you know I charge people to tell my story, um, to hear my story. I was I'm ten years older than you are, and I grew up in a tiny town in upstate New York that was really white and really wealthy. And uh, there was no gay culture. There was no transgender right. culture. It was really was the first the first person that I saw that was transgender was Renee Richards. And that was when I was 13 years old. You saw her? Well, I saw like that was the first time I saw anybody like in the news mm. uh, gotcha. about being transgender. Right. Uh, and I knew I was like when I was eight and I got caught and it was like 16. I'm sorry. I got caught by my mom when I was 13 and Renee Nidgers uh, sued to play in the WTA when she was 16, yep. when I was mm -hmm. 16. So by that time I had doubled down on my masculinity, but I was exactly the same way as you. I was so terrified. Remember the movie, the crying game? Oh, don't even get me started. Well, with uh, which was another my, another wave of transphobia that further forced me deeper into the closet, and a lot of trans. Yeah, me too. Did. And very, I was yeah, very, very. I was dating movie. a woman, and she wanted to see it, and like I was very much of an art house European Scottish uh, kind of a film buff, and so she said, "Let's go see this." Let's, and I was so afraid that when I walked into the theater, just because I was mm -hmm. walking into a theater where this was happening, that everybody Everybody was going to turn and point at me and go, one of them, that's one of them. Even though it's like this mm -hmm. big burly bearded guy. That was, I know that fear. I, I felt that fear most of my life. So it's, it's tragic. Honestly, yeah. it's really tragic. That's why I'm to so, live your life in fear. Yeah. That's why I'm so glad you're doing the work that you're doing with uh, transgender youth. And anybody that mm -hmm. does that is a hero in my book because I don't want, I don't wish that sort of existence on anybody. So we're, that's mid-90s then approximately. We're talking Jerry Springer then. So I was still in college. So as we're looking ahead then, so you dig in, you get married, you do the Mormon life thing. and Yeah, I did the Mormon thing. I went on a mission and I repressed my gender identity there thinking that God was going to cure me. Honestly, thinking that God was going to fix me. Uh, got married, fortunately got married to a lovely woman and... Uh, she knew about my gender identity before we got married, and I thought maybe being married would help me work through this. Uh, she agreed on some level to incorporate my female identity into our marriage. As our marriage progressed, she became less and less willing to do that, which was a disappointment to me. But I can't, you know, I can't dictate for anybody their course of their life. 
and, and as she became more and more rejecting of who I was, my female identity, that really kind of set up uh, this, a schism in our marriage, a breakdown of trust in our marriage, uh, an expectation from her that if I was going to do this, she wanted to have no part of it. She didn't want to know about it or see it. So there's starting to breed a lot of distrust, a lack of trust, and a lot of lying from me. And transgender people, we are already really good liars to begin with. We're forced to learn how to lie to stay alive, to stay hidden. So I'm using all of my skills in deception, in lie, lying, uh, obfuscation, half-truth telling, lying by omission, lying by inclusion, all the things I can do because that's largely what was expected of me as a religious person. And that was the condition that my wife had set up in our marriage. Yeah, and I think, you know, from my personal experience with that, when when your spouse doesn't want to see it, it forces you to live a double life. Did you? And I think there was a time where you were driving to work, changing, and you got caught too, right? No, I never got caught. Um, I was a professor of photography teaching at Snow College in Ephraim, Utah, which is about two hours south of where I lived. I was teaching there two days a week, Monday, Wednesday. I was also teaching that same semester at BYU, the Mormon church, in the morning and up the street, UVU, the secular state church, in the afternoon. So I'm teaching adjunct at three different universities teaching photography. My job at Snow College, they accepted me teaching there as Kimberly. So two days a week, I'm teaching university classes in Ephraim at Snow College as a woman. Two days of the week, I'm teaching classes at BYU in the morning as a man and at UVU as a man. So I'm going back and forth and back and forth. What ultimately ended up happening is one day I'm driving to school and my next door neighbor, who we're really good friends with, she's driving next to me and I almost was positive that she saw me in the car. So I called her and I told her what was going on. She asked me if my wife knew and I said, yeah, she did. Because she did know about my transgender identity. She knew about that part. So in part of my head, I'm thinking, yeah, she knows about this. Yet at the same time, the, the idea that I was teaching as Kimberly, she had no idea about that. No idea whatsoever. So uh, I, I told her that lie that, yeah, she knew all about it, thinking that she wouldn't tell my wife. Well, she actually did tell my wife. And then that was the beginning of the end. Uh, and rightly so. It, there was betrayal. There was lying. There was, you know, all the things that uh, undermine a marriage. Uh, it does not excuse my behavior whatsoever. And that was the reality of my life at, the, at that point. That was the condition that had been set up over two decades of marriage. Um, that was what was expected of me. And we, I think we both knew quite honestly, both of you, when we got married, her knowing this about my gender identity, I think we spent 20 years walking on eggshells. And I have to give her a lot of credit. She's a strong woman. She's a smart woman. She's an educator with, with a master's degree and she's an administrator. She's a smart person. Uh, and we, by and large, had a great marriage with a really fragile, shaky you know, foundation that really wasn't healthy. So we had, in, even in our own marriage, a lot of confusion and a lot of mixed signals. Uh, we stuck through it as long as we could. And I thought we ended up lasting about seven to eight years longer than, than we really were going to. So I, have to, I give her a lot of credit and I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for any straight spouse in any LGBTQ mixed orientation marriage where the spouse is queer and the other spouse is straight. I have a lot of respect uh, for those individuals because they, uh, whether they know it or not, uh, they are putting up with a tremendous amount of stress in their marriage. It's a very difficult position. How's your relationship with your, with your family now? Uh, non-existent. Uh, my parents have disowned me. Um, I am not, I'm not invited and rather, I'm excluded from family events and have been for approximately five years. Um, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Uh, that's that's kind of the reality of coming out as a transgender person in an orthodox uh, environment. Um, my siblings haven't spoken to me on uh, about the same amount of time. Um, my children and I, we are in the middle of well, not the middle. We're at the very early stages of repairing our relationship. My daughter and oh, I... Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it's... it's. Uh, they're going to know me longer as Kimberly than they knew me as my former self. They really, really will. They're in their early 20s. I plan to be alive if COVID doesn't get me, God forbid. Mm. Uh, and not to make light of a significant, serious situation that people are suffering and dying from this. But if I don't... You know, I plan to live at least 35 years. 
so they will know me longer as Kimberly than they'd ever did as their father. Well, as the male version of their father. My daughter and I have a very tenuous um, texting back and forth via messenger uh, relationship. My son and I haven't spoken in about three years. I'm very patient. Uh, I love them tremendously. Uh, and every time, uh, every time I do anything, I, I try to make sure that they are able to hear how much I love and I miss them. And I support their own path. Their journey through accepting me, their journey of working through their challenges, uh, emotionally, spiritually, interpersonally, whatever their challenges are, I must support them and accept them in their process in the exact same way that I demand and expect that, that respect from them. So it really has to be a two-way street. And even though this is slow, even though this is, this is tedious, uh, even though it breaks my heart every single day, I must respect their process. And I would assume through you're very visible on podcasts and your persona, and but I've heard this from you in other places. I hope that they're here. I hope through the grapevine that they understand your love for them. I do too. Um, I, I do enough of these things. I'm vocal enough and I'm visible enough. And I say this message to them often enough. They will ultimately hear these things. Uh, and honestly, I think that their grandkids or their children, my grandkids, are going to do some research. Well, who was this Kimberly Anderson? Let's do a little Google search for her. Let's dig in and find out a little bit about her. They will hear these recordings and they will know how I've always had an undying love for my kids and how I've always been patient. And I will continue to be patient for them as long as it takes. So I do these recordings and these podcasts and my writings. I do this for my grandkids as well, because this may be the only way they ever get to know who I am. Well, I'm glad I got a chance to know you even just for this podcast episode. Oh, thank you. You're very sweet to say that, Penny. Oh, I, I mean it. Thank you very much, Kimberly Anderson, for spending time with us. And Amy and I will come back with our final thoughts right after this. This is Transformation Thursday. To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to TransformationThursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020 welcome back to transformation thursday i'm amy stevens and my pronouns are she her and i'm penny sterling and my pronouns are she her as well <laughs> I'm still here. I'm Kimberly Anderson, and my pronouns are also. She's still here! Yay! So glad! Um, So glad you're here. I'm like a bad penny you can't get rid of. Hey, I'm the bad penny. I'm actually the I'm I'm the good penny. You know, you just flip me. Well, heads or tails, (laughs) I'll I'll be yours. Anyhow, so this was. Thank you again for for being on with us, Kimberly. This has been both fun and informative, and I'm really. I'm really glad that I got a Thank chance you. to hear it's, your story. It's always a pleasure, a privilege. Huh? What? So, you're very <laughs> but no, seriously, seriously it, it is always yeah. a pleasure and a privilege right. to, to be able to it's, share any part of my journey. How important it is for us to pave the way for younger transgender kids. It's seems to be like most of the t- stuff that I do and you, Amy, is just like educational. We do it entertainingly, but just to educate the people out there, the cisgender world that no one gets turned transgender, we either are or we aren't. And admitting it and and helping us to be our authentic selves is so much more important. Yeah. And I think along with that, you know, we've hit on a lot of different elements from recent shows in this one episode, you know, and what you said about, you know, you doing storytelling me with my comedy and what Kimberly does through podcasting and her work is, is that education piece. And even though, you know, we try to present our stories in a funny way, maybe, or entertaining, how many times do we have transgender individuals come up and hug us because, you know what, I've never heard it put that way or cisgender people like, oh, it finally clicked for me. 
And so I think this is a big part of that puzzle, but I think having us visible does help that um, next generation. So, and I don't blame people that want to live a stealth life either, you know, but one of the things that really stuck in my head as we were going through this is it's so important for, you know, parents to provide their gender expansive children that place to be safe in their own home. And as their gender expansive children or transgender, gender non-binary, whatever that might be for them, to also provide that safe space for their kids' friends. Wonderful. Because, yeah, because that space is just invaluable. And you wanna have those friendships blossom in a structured environment, a loving, supportive place. Because you know what, if it happens uh, you know, at somebody else's house, you don't know what's going on there as a parent. It could happen on the street. It could happen with drugs and alcohol and everything else. And so to have that structured, loving environment is so positive. You know, and I've seen it firsthand, you know, in my life, you know, through some of my, you know, through some close friends. And so it, it's important to have that space available. So Kimberly, it's time for your final thought. I think if I'm going to share anything uh, for parents, really, it's that they are the key ingredient to their child's success. The parent really has the key to how they progress, to how, how that bond of trust is kept or lost, how well that child is able to navigate the challenges, the real challenges that are coming up from them, especially if they're early transitioners. There are significant significant medical issues that it can be very beneficial to navigate with a trained uh, mental health professional, with a trained medical team, endocrinologist, MD, psychiatrist, certainly psych uh, uh, full wraparound care is really necessary uh, for a transgender kid to have a healthy uh, transition or healthy life regardless of transition. So uh, the par parents, I'm, I'm really begging, honestly, I'm on my knees, but begging you to listen to your kids and to trust them and just expend, extend love. Wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Kimberly, for being with us for this probably more than an hour. And thank you, Amy, for booking her on this show. And we will see you next week, or at least you'll hear us next week on Transformation Thursday. Good night, Amy. Good night, Benny and Kimberly. Good night, Kimberly. Good night, ladies. And God bless us, everyone.